Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films, and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, I have a real treat for Western fans everywhere. When it comes to chronicling the history of the Wild West, Peter Shereko is your man. As the founder and CEO of Caravan West, he's worked on over a thousand films, TV shows, commercials, and shorts, supplying filmmakers with everything from Winchesters to covered wagons, saddles, horses, and his fabled buckaroos to ride them. He's also an author, a film historian, a stunt coordinator, a producer, a sometime actor, and most recently, the consulting producer on the INSP series, Wild West Chronicles. Welcome, Peter. <laughs> it's good to be here. You know, um, I've known Peter for years. In fact, I've hired Peter on a couple of occasions, and it's always fun. I, I have to say that you are part of a kind of a dying breed of Hollywood. They're dying to... breed, yes. We are the dying breed. <laughs> the, the, uh, the Gen X or, or whoever these people are, are waiting for the baby boomers to die so they can take over. <laughs> well, and I laugh about that because when I was, when I was young and, and growing up, I respected my elders and I used them as a, as a guidepost to help guide me to where I wanted to uh, be and, and w what I wanted to do. And uh, this new generation, and I just got that on Facebook last week, where a guy said, we're waiting for you to die so we can take over. And I said, why, you know, are you so insecure that you have to have people die before you can take over? I said, just go, go ahead and do what you want to do. But they don't do what they want to do. Anyway, all right, my rant is over on that. Let's get the movies. So uh, speaking of growing up, uh, I'd love to know uh, about your family life when you were growing up as a kid. Were you guys moviegoers? I was a moviegoer. I used to spend, uh, as a kid, my God, Saturday matinees uh, I would go to. And then when I was in, uh, say, I'd start starting around the eighth grade all through high school, I would go to about three movies a week. At, at the local theaters, because I'd have to walk to them. But they would always change. They would have a movie running from Sunday through Tuesday. Wednesday, they would have some, some oddball movie. And then Thursday through uh, Saturday, they would have uh, usually the better better movies. But I would go and see uh, every one. And then I watched TV. You know, we were the TV generation. So I always watched everything on uh, that I could. And what community was this? Come on, ride a horse the way I ride, shoot a gun the way I shoot. New Jersey, where else? <laughs> Is that true? You're originally from New Jersey? I'm originally from New Jersey. I grew up in a little suburb which uh, of uh, of New York City, about 25 miles away, which is now, it was a little farming community when I was a kid in the 50s. And we had the woods that we would go to and and play and play cowboys and, and there were empty fields and uh, all these wonderful places, and now it's nothing but uh, condos and and uh, housing developments that you could walk from one roof to another. I remember back in the 70s, I, uh, I was riding my horse through an area, and uh, I literally, I, I, I sat down and cried because I used to ride my horse uh, all through these wonderful woods. And uh, one Friday, I, I rode the next week I was riding in there, and they had bulldozed at least a square mile of trees down, just pile them up. And they had a sign up, welcome to Dover Woods, which was a housing development. And I, and I lit, I looked at that and I, all the beauty that was there of part of nature is now nothing but, uh, you know, but townhouses. Well, I'm, and, reminded, uh, I'm reminded of Joni Mitchell. They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. And put up a parking lot. Exactly. Was, was your you dad. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. Right. Peter, was your dad involved in show business at all? Not at all. My father was a factory worker, you know, grew up, uh, you know, in the Depression. 
And uh, he got a job in 1939 at a factory and worked on that until the factory closed when he was 62 and he he took a, he retired. So no, never was nobody in my family was, uh, was involved with, uh, you know, anything, movies, TV. Uh, It's just something that uh, I always wanted to, as a kid, I watched the show Rin Tin Tin. And I always said to my friends, I want, I want, I'm going to be on that. And uh, I watched uh, The Musketeers that was on, you know, in the afternoons. The and Mickey I always Mouse wanted Club. to, uh, yeah, the Mickey Mouse Club. And I always wanted to, to be part of that. I wanted to be part of Spin and Marty. I just wanted to do that. And then everything left me when, when uh, I got to the high school and I was playing sports and baseball and football. And, and I wanted to be a baseball player until I got hurt. Uh, and then uh, after that, I joined the service. Uh, I'm a Vietnam veteran. I came back and I discovered I, I'm a collector. You've been to my place. So you've seen that I have, you know, I, hoarders that show hoarders rents from me. No, absolutely. It, I mean, your, it, your, it, your gun room is second to none. I, I walked in there one day and there were like 500 uh, six shooters. I mean, it was like every possible parameter of gun. Every, every yeah. And I try to find uh, more and more. And uh, anyway, I was I was that. And and back then, back in the '60s, I was a uh, a record collector and a comic book collector. So I I got all of those things. And then by by a chance, I I kept on winning a contest on a radio a local radio station, and. Uh, they asked me because they got to know me so well. And it was always three cans of tuna. So I had a kitchen full of tuna and I would win all the time. And then they finally asked me, they said, Hey, would you ever think of becoming a disc jockey? And, you know, this is again, AM radio, top 40, you know, 1968, 69. And I said, no, I, I never thought about that. I hung up the phone and I thought about five minutes and I said, what a great job that would be sitting there in a little room talking to myself all the time, playing, playing the music I love. Yeah. And I called them back and they brought me in. We became friends and they helped me at that time. You had to have an FCC license, a third class license uh, for, for broadcasting. And I was still in the air force. So while I was in that, I I was transferred to uh, uh, in Virginia, Langley air force base, Virginia, my whole squadron left. They went to Korea for six months. And I only had five months to go, so I couldn't go. There were about eight of us that were left. And I said, well, what are we doing? They said, nothing. Go to the beach. So I went to the beach. I went around. I had nothing to do. I came back, and uh, a first sergeant came in while I was out cavorting, and uh, he was going to yell at me. So he put me on a punishment detail of uh, cutting grass. So I, here I am. I'm a, I'm a sergeant. I've got four months to go. I'm cutting grass. And a lieutenant came up to me and uh, he said, Sergeant, he said, what are, you, what are you cutting grass for? And I said, well, my whole squadron, and I, I explained the whole thing. He said, did you ever hear of Project Transition? And I said, no. He said, come down to my office. So I went into his office and he called. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a radio disc jockey. He called up the local radio station, which was WGH 1310 on your dial. And the owner of the station happened to be a colonel in the Air National Guard. And he said, Colonel, I have a sergeant here who's getting out of the service in four months, and he would like to be a radio disc jockey. What can we do for him? He said, send him down to the station. So I ended up going to the station, making $2 an hour as um, on-the-job training. And my Air Force career, that was it. That was was my job. So I got my Air Force pay as well as my $2 an hour working at the uh, radio station. And I was there for a month, and then they put me on the air. And as we, as I'm doing this, I'm driving a Corvair. I had a 64 Corvair. <laughs> and the guy before me had a Porsche, and the guy after me had a Mercedes. And I kept on saying, I said, guys, uh, what, what, what am I doing wrong here? What's, what's the story? And they said, hey, you're young. I'm 22 years old. He said, you're young. They were all like 10, 15 years older than me. He said, you're going to spend 10 years in this business at every podunk radio station in Iowa and Kansas and things until you develop your style. And then you'll eventually get to a bigger time and you'll start making some money. 
And he said, did you finish college? And I said, no, I had a year in while I was in the service. I also went to University of Maine in Florida State where, where I was stationed. And uh, I, I got a year in and I said, no, he says, all right. He says, when you get out of the Air Force, he says, go back to college, get a degree. And now I'm in college. And my speech teacher is directing a play, which I've never been in in my life. And he said, hey, I want you, you're older than everybody else. I want you to be in this play. I said, I've never done. He said, I want you to be in the play. You're in this play. And I end up kissing the prettiest girl in the theater department who I had a crush on. And I said, like Buffalo Bill said, <laughs> you're looking out at the audience and everybody applauds. And you go, wow, there ain't no turning back. And I changed my major to, to uh, theater and then film. And I started figuring out what I wanted to do in life is to make a mark somewhere in, in the business. And of course, when I got into the business in the 70s, Everyone told me, or people, and again, I respected older people, and I looked for advice from them. And they said, you have to invest in a laundromat. And he said, a laundromat is something that earns money when you're not, so that you could tide yourself over in the hard times, which is what this business is all about. And that's when 33 years ago, I invented Caravan West as my laundromat. And so now I, I supply everything to the movies. I work more now than I did when I was a struggling actor because now the directors will send me a script and they'll say, hey, here's what we need. Break me, break it down. Give me a budget. Tell me what it's going to cost me. And, hey, you've been in 90 movies. What part do you want to play? <laughs> and, and that's how I, uh, you know, I keep, on, uh, I keep on working. I keep on doing this. And we, uh, we have fun. And I'm doing Westerns which is uh, when, I was, when I was in New York and uh, a girl that I was going out with at the time said, uh, you have to pigeonhole yourself. This business is going to pigeonhole you. And think about it. You don't see uh, Robert De Niro doing a Western. You don't see Al Pacino doing a war movie, but you'll see him doing gangster movies. Everybody is pigeonholed into, into what they are good at. And I said, well, let's see. I, I was living in a log cabin. I had horses and I was collecting guns and, uh, and cowboy stuff. And I was studying the West and I said, all right, that's what I want to do. And what I, I was on in New York for eight years doing uh, stage plays. I was on a soap opera for a while. I was doing all of this stuff and I wanted to come out to California to do Westerns. So let me give you the, <laughs> the start of that. I have never bought low and bra beer. And I'm a sucker for good advertising. Now, if you remember Low and Brow Beer, they used to have these commercials back in the 70s when it's time to relax. And they would always show some guy doing some manual labor. And then a friend of his comes out with a tray with Low and Brow Beer on it. And they, and they you know, drink that. Well, I was on the soap opera. I got a call from my agent. Said, go down to the, you have an audition at 12 o'clock right now. And your lunchtime, go down there. Well, I forgot to ask her what the audition was for. I get in the cab from ABC. I drive down to the uh, to the audition place, and there's several auditions going. And I go, oh, I don't know what I'm here for. And I look, and I said, there's Lowen Brow. And it's a guy living in a log cabin chopping wood, and his friend comes in with a Lowen Brow beer to relax. And I said, wait a minute. I lived in a log cabin. I chop wood. I drink beer. Hey, it must be this commercial. So I sign up. Casting director came out, looks at the list, and she goes, hey, who's Peter? I said, me. She goes, oh, no, no, you're not right for this. <laughs> what? <laughs> Excuse me. And I looked down the aisle of, uh, of other actors, and no offense, as Seinfeld says, not that there's anything wrong with that, but they were all gay guys in brand-new flannel shirts. And then she said, the casting director said, you're here for the singing quiche commercial. <laughs> now, that was the time that was right after the book came out. Real men don't eat quiche. Right. And I had, so I had to audition for as a singing quiche for, for a commercial. And I said, okay, as soon as I'm done with all my children, I'm, I'm going to California. <laughs> so when I was done, I packed up, uh, we had a Winnebago. I had two horses, my pickup truck and uh, my wife, Susan, who, you know, 
um, we we traveled uh, out west, and we took 12 weeks to get across country. And I said we were caravanning west. That is that gave me the name for the company. So how, did you come out with horses? Yeah. Oh yeah, I came out with horses, my cowboy guns, my my cowboy gear. I was studying the west of the 70s, and and I wanted to make westerns. When I got out here, they said. Oh, no, no. You know, because I was, a, again, a New York stage actor. I was on a soap opera. I had, uh, you know, I was clean shaven. I wore Brooks Brothers suits. And they said, no, you have to do this. My 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 designer just came into the home away from home to see, see what I'm doing. I'm on a podcast right now. Oh, yeah? Yes. What's it for? And what's it for? It's for making me important. So <laughs> anyway, that's what I'm doing. That. What do you what do you need? They're in the back seat of the car, and they're all Caravan West. They're not all. They all CW on them. Except they were purchased by. Oh, no, they weren't. They weren't. I'm having we're having arguments now. I'm the I'm the, the I, this is my designer on the show, and uh, they they rent everything from me, but they get I rent at such a cheap price. They get. Every, that's why they. That's why I'm the uh, insulting producer, or as I like to call myself, the insulting producer, because I yell at them all the time. So, what was the first show that you became a caravan wester? It started uh, in the late '80s. Uh, I did Death Wish Four, oh. and if you if you've watched Death Wish Four, you'll notice that I am a. Uh, that I'm a that I'm a cowboy, that I wore snakeskin cowboy boots. I I used single action Colts, and I went up to uh, Jay Lee Thompson, who was the director. And everybody gets killed in the in the uh, different fights, except me. I don't die till the end of the movie. And I said, listen, everybody's using AK-47s and Uzis and all that, and I'm far into that stuff. I know nothing about modern guns. And I said, but this is what I do. So I started twirling single actions, and I said. Let me use these on the movies. I won't charge you for them. So he did. Uh, Bronson gives, who hired the cowboy? And, um, and, and that's, how, um, that, that's how it started. And then I, I did another movie called uh, Black Snow, where my fa- the guy playing my father in the movie was a, uh, a former Texas Ranger. And he gives me a single action. And uh, that's how I have to fight all of the uh, criminals and that. And then we did uh, another one called Tarzan in Manhattan, and I brought my guns into that. I said, no charge. Just let me bring them in. Let me show you, you know, what I can do and, and how we do it. And that was very really funny. That's when I found out that that uh, prop guys really don't know their job. They know their job. They know how they know that scene 23 of uh, this character needs a pocket watch and he needs a gun, but they don't know what gun or they don't know anything. So I, I brought in, I was using a uh, Colt Python and I brought in the blanks and I brought in the gun. And I, of course, you have to give it to the prop guy because they're in charge of it. So I gave it to him. And then uh, Jay, uh, the director of the show said, uh, Peter, OK, you got to shoot Tarzan. Uh, where's your gun? I said, the prop guy has it. He said, why does he have it? Go get it. So I went over there and the prop guy is standing there. He's got the gun in one hand. He's got the box of blanks in the other hand. And he's going to his assistant, who is a girl. And he said, how do you load this thing? And I looked at him and I said, give me that. I said, this is like a guy who paints by numbers telling Rembrandt what to do. <laughs> and, that's, and that's when I found out that, that the guys, you know, customers, prop people, said people, they know their job, but they don't know the period. And, and that's when I, I developed more and more in the period. And that's why I created the Buckaroos. Like, all right, my designer who just walked in here, uh, Christian Ramirez, has been working with me since 1992 when we did a movie called Ghost Brigade. Or what was the other name? They had some other name for it. And then he works with me on Tombstone. Oh, The Killing Box. And uh, he's been working with me ever since then. And he knows his stuff. So the guys that I bring in, like Buckaroos, they want me to hire them. And I go, listen, can you outride me and outshoot me? If you can do that, I want you. I want guys that are better than me. That makes my job easier. I don't have to worry about doing anything. I just go, here's your job. You handle these horses, you handle this, you know, put the correct period saddles on them. I buy all the stuff. So I buy all the props, all the set dressing, all the costumes, 
the guns, the, the gun belts, the saddles. Peter, I get all of that stuff. Speaking yeah, of yeah the, go ahead. You're, no, no. Speaking what? of the guns, the, these guns that you brought from New Jersey, your collection guns, these are guns that were originally manufactured in the 1800s, correct? Yeah. So if you want to get a, a prop six-shooter for a Western show, there's nobody making new six-shooters, are there? Hey, oh, yeah. There's about four companies that make new six-shooters, and I buy them all the time because I've learned to, for actors, they, they don't know how to handle period guns. All right, I have... I had two shotguns on the show today and I'm the armorer on the show because my, my regular armor had a serious motorcycle accident. He's laid up. So while he's doing that, I I'll, I'll armor the show as well as consult on it. And, uh, naturally I had two antique shotguns, 1880s shotguns, cause it was uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And one of them, they broke the, they broke the, uh, the uh, stock on it. And I said, how can I've had this gun for 30 years? I've used it. I've never broken it. How can you use it once and break it? I don't know. So, yeah, I try to put, there's a lot of uh, reproduction guns made, but nobody, uh, but I, so I don't put them on movies. I'll use, I'll use original stuff. When we did Tombstone, my character, Texas Jack, I had my, both my six guns were made. One was made in 1882 and one was made in 1889. They worked flawlessly for, on the movie. My shotgun was made in 1875, and my rifle, which was a Whitney Kennedy, which nobody you had never seen Whitney Kennedys on on a movie. That's why I'm creating this TV show, which I'm uh, negotiating with a, a new network. Uh, called me up a couple of months ago. I just talked to them on Friday, and they're uh, they they want the show, which I'm. It's called Forgotten Guns of Western Movies. There was oh. an article written. Uh, a couple of months ago by a guy from Western Writers of America. I'm also a member of that. And he said, how come we see the same guns in Western movies? It's always the Colt single action, and it's always the uh, Winchester lever action, and usually the 92 in, in most of the movies. And I went to my armory. I went. We have 1,500 guns in there, and I, uh, I counted 120 different guns that were made in the 19th century that you never see in movies or very rarely see any of them in movies. So I put this show together. I wrote 30 episodes. I wrote the first 10 episodes for the first season, put that together. And we're going to feature guns that n the first episode has a, uh, a uh, Maynard, a Gallagher and a Burnside. Wow. Do you I've know those, those guns? Have you ever heard? Okay. Never heard Most of people so but they were they were all made prior to the Civil War. They were all designed in eighteen fifty nine. All the companies went broke because there was no war going on. They went they went either bankrupt or sold their rights. And then the war breaks out two years later and they become bit best sellers. So the originators of all those guns lost you know, had had nothing. What the the uh, companies that bought the rights add them. But now after the war, these are now all surplus guns. How many people in the old, moving old to the old West, how many of those people do you think use those guns? I would say hundreds, if not thousands of people use those guns. I have one book on, um, on firearms of the American West. I thought it was a boring book. It was just a lot of numbers until I really reread the book. In 1882, the most popular gun in the Old West, the gun that sold the most, was an 1842 Mississippi rifle, which was a, a muzzle-loading big-bore rifle, 58 caliber. And it was a cap-and-ball gun. It was used in the Civil War, but it was the most popular gun in 1882. And people go, well, why do you do that? Look, think of the West. Think of the towns that were there. They weren't cities like Denver. They weren't cities like New York or Chicago. They were little hovels. They were people living in wagons. They were people living hand to mouth. And everything, every, nothing was there. So you can't go into, there were literally hundreds, if not thousands, of different calibers, of different types of guns. Well, you, so you, what general you... store could carry them? 
when you mention they, they, a, when you mention a yeah, muzzle when you mention a muzzle loader i think of a civil war infantryman putting a ball at the front of the gun and stuffing it down there with the uh the thing you're talking about a muzzle with loader. the ramrod a ramrod That's right i would think that right. as, as soon as there was the uh lever the action gun the lever action rifle that everything else would be obsolete by the 1880s they were still using muzzle loaders they were oh yeah well that's what i'm saying 1882 that was the biggest selling gun in the old west but here's here's the point that i'm making the single action colt or the or the winchester the 1873 winchester they were the mercedes of the time right so i tell people hey go to a walmart parking lot how many cars are there and how many Mercedes are there amongst those cars? That's basically what you had with single action Colts or lever action Winchesters. Yes, by the 1890s, they they took over because they were now cheaper. They were now introduced to the public. They they could the army wasn't using them anymore. You when, know, in 1873, when the single action came out, it was only for the military. It was a military grade gun. Well, here's the a civilians question. weren't allowed to have them until 1876. Here's a question which comes up in a lot of Western movies where there's always a scene where the um, the subtler, the you know, the, the trading post on the military post is selling guns to the Indians. Now, I don't yeah. know if it I mean, that seems to happen, whether they sell them out of a wagon out in the desert or however the Indians are getting these weapons. That what is that a bunch of hooey? Well, during Prohibition, weren't there a lot of people selling booze? Drugs are illegal. Weren't, aren't there a lot of people selling drugs? Yep, that's it, true. It was the same thing. Back then, they knew they could make money from the Indians. They could, you know, the Indians had stuff that they wanted, whether it was, whether it was gold, which the Indians didn't care about, whether it was fur, skins, hides, and the Indians couldn't, they couldn't go into a store and buy a gun. So... Yes, you had people selling them, just like during 1923, you had people making booze and selling it. Sure. Just sure. like today, you have people selling uh, cocaine. You can't. You can't go to Walmart. You can't go to the drugstore and say, uh, give me give me a little. Well, you can get marijuana now in, in the thing because of uh, what's going on. But that that's the way it was back then. So, yeah, a lot of people were selling stuff to the Indians. All right. So you come out to California. You start you start Caravan West. What's the competition like uh, when you started? Because the, from what I gather, the studios had started to cut um, uh, a lot of their, I mean, they were paving over their back lots. I mean, MGM gave up their back lot around the time you, you're talking, late 60s. Uh, were there, was there competition for, for the caravan? Well, the, when, when the studios sold off their back lots, they sold off their, their prop department. They sold off their costume department. So you have people like uh, Western Costume. You have ISS. You have History for Hire, Hand Prop Room. You have all of these prop houses that open up around the country. But they specialize in uh, everything. You know, they can do a 1950s diner. They can do Star Trek. They can do World War II. And they have a small amount of the West. I have concentrated solely on the West. So I've had a lot of uh, set people and prop people come out to come out to the ranch, go through. We have 20 buildings full of stuff. And they said if ISS History for Hire and Hand Prop Room were to put all their Western stuff together, it, it would equal 25 percent of what I have. Because I specialize in that. Now, now do I have do I have competition? Yes, I have competition because the big guys. They don't care about, uh, they, they have a you know, $100 million budget, $50 million budget, $200 million budget, like on the Lone Ranger. So they can have everything made for them. They can have everything manufactured. So they don't care about this. That's why I specialize in doing commercials, in doing independent, low-budget movies, you know, budget movies that are a million dollars, some less, some a little bit more, because... They can't. They don't have the money or the time to make all that stuff, but they have. But I. So I have all of stuff for them, and I have it historically correct. Whereas the other prop houses don't. A prop guy goes to, and I'm not going to mention the name. You know, any prop house, 
and he'll go, I'm doing a Western movie. I need 12 Western guns. And they'll, you know, and the prop guy who doesn't care about that. He might, he just cares about, let's, let's rent it out to him. Ah, right, yeah, here's 12 guns. My first thing, when I talk to the line producer or when I talk to the producer or the director, I go, what year is it? Where is it at? Because Wyoming in 1880 was different than Dodge City in 1875 was different in Texas in 1867. I will, I will go and I will design everything for that period. And as an actor, when I go through the script, I break down every character like I break down my own character. And I, I look at that. We did a movie called Hard Bounty a while ago. And uh, the, the main character was a bounty hunter. There's a scene where he goes into the bank and he has $22,000 in the bank. Now, this is the time when people made 10 cents an hour. He had 20 and he buys the saloon in town. So I gave him a brand new saddle for his horse. And the director came up to me and he goes, that saddle looks new. And I said, it is new. And he goes, well, why? He's a, he's a bounty hunter and he's off riding around. And I said, yeah. I said, what kind of a car do you drive? He looked at me and he goes, I, I, I drive a Mercedes. Why? I said, why do you drive a Mercedes? And he said, because I can afford it. I said, so can he. He can afford a new saddle. Now, he was after one, one of the scenes in the movie. He's after this poor farmer kid. So I gave him an old saddle that had replaced parts on it in different colors. So picture, picture some 20-year-old guy who's struggling, and he's driving a 20-year-old Toyota around with a yellow fender in a blue car with a green door because, you know, he had accidents and they had to replace that stuff. And that's what I gave, you know, people have not changed in 5,000 years. We still have the same seven deadly sins. We still have the egos. We still have all of the stuff that has gone on through history. And that's what I've studied. I, I study more psychology of people. And I look at that and I say, when I'm looking at a script and I'm going, what is the psychology of, of this, of this person? Why is he doing this? You know, there's uh, five questions that every actor should ask themselves. Who, what, why, where, and when, who are you? What are you? Where are you? When are you, is this taking place? And why are you there? If you can answer all of those questions or make them up, you've developed the character. And that's what I do when I'm looking at a script. Now, back in the 50s, when you and I were watching 9,000 Westerns on TV, uh, it, it seemed like every actor was comfortable around horses. You know, there obviously were certain actors who weren't. What's the story today with actors? My impression is that when actors come to sets where you're working on with your horses, are you getting people who are comfortable or are you constantly having to train them how to ride? Constantly having to train them. Luckily, one of my wranglers, uh, her, her main job is teaching kids how to ride. So uh, on this show, we're taking a lot of the main actors and they're going to her place and she's teaching them how to ride. What, what are, what are some of the things, what are the, some of the things that movie actors must learn about horses? They have to not only know the horse, but they have to let the horse know them. When I'm working on a movie and, and uh, uh, like I worked on Rough Riders, well, I did not supply the horses for Rough Riders, but I had to ride a horse. So the Wrangler, you know, in that case, the Wrangler knew me well. And he goes, yeah, Pete, pick out, pick out what horse you want. And uh, what I would do is assimilate with the horse. The horse becomes mine we become partners, we become buddies. And this is what I try to tell actors. You have to, you have to associate with that horse. You have to be with that horse. You have to let that horse know you, let that horse learn uh, about you. And you have to know his idiosyncrasies and he has to know yours. That's, that's the difference. The problem, the, the reason is back in, in the fifties, when we were growing up watching all of these Westerns, they were studio Westerns, Warner Brothers, you know, Universal, all those studios. They had people under studio contract. When they weren't working on a show, they were still being paid. Not much, but they were still being paid. Now, what they were being paid was 
okay, if you're, if you're not working on a show this week, you're going to take horseback riding lessons. You're going to take fencing lessons. You're going to go and learn how to handle a gun. You're going to go and learn how to do this. Clint Eastwood, when he was doing rawhide, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, got a, carrying a gun every day. So he became a fast draw guy and he was the only celebrity that entered the fast draw contest in Vegas in the early sixties, even though people like Sammy Davis Jr., Glenn Ford and Jerry Lewis were big fast draw guys. Jerry Lewis, Jerry Lewis, Jerry Lewis was a big, yeah, was a big, big uh, single action Colts guy. And Buddy Hackett was a a collector of uh, single action Colts. You know, again, the old stars were different from today's modern woke people. Right. It was, it was a totally different, uh, totally different way of, uh, of looking at the world. Who would you say, who would you say was the best? western rider that you ever saw or heard of in terms of comfort on a horse ben johnson with without a doubt ben johnson was uh was incredible that you know he was a cowboy he came out from oklahoma and brought uh, brought cattle out uh ended up ended up with uh in the john ford uh uh company of uh, of heroes as his uh, stock company and uh he was just an incredible man on a horse you, uh, you, you see some of the, the some of the rides that he did in uh, in Fort Apache or um, she wore a yellow ribbon. They're they're incredible, and he did it. It was it wasn't a stuntman doing it for him. It was him because he was the man. Well, when you when you see Ben Johnson racing across the prairie in Fort Apache, being chased by those Indians. He's on this, I mean, I'm looking at the ground. You're praying that the horse doesn't fall into a hole, but uh, I always worry at times when they're crossing. When, when you're having a chase scene like that, when you have Indians chasing. Uh, Again, that's because he understood the horse and the horse understood him. Got it. That's why I'm saying you become one with the horse. So you, you, know, you know that horse well. If you're just an actor and you're, oh, I got to ride a horse today. Can you ride? Well, I, I rode when I was eight years old at summer camp. No, you can't ride. You know, that's, that's the difference between now and then. That's, see, that's what happened to me. When I first started acting in the business, the first job I had, they, they gave me a gun and, and I was a bad guy. And I was like, shit, I don't know what, I don't know what I'm doing. I didn't know that. So after that, I, I met with Bob Munden, who's the fastest gun. He's in Guinness Book of World Records. I worked with him for a year. I grabbed people for two years while I was in New York. I had people teaching me bows and arrows, how to throw tomahawks, how to throw knives, how to shoot. I went trap shooting all the time. I worked with Bob Munden, teaching me uh, fast draw and teaching me how to handle single action until, yes, 40 years later, I am now the expert. But so, that's, that's um, the difference. Years. You, and it's what I tell actors. What? You, Go ahead. You had the opportunity to work on what is probably, arguably, one of the five best Westerns ever of the last 40 years, a, a movie called Tombstone. I'm sure the listeners know the Kurt Russell Tombstone with... Uh, uh, Val Kilmer. With Val Kilmer and a wonderful cast. Tell tell us a little bit how you got involved in that project, Peter, because you you've you've focused on lower budget films, but this is a big budget Hollywood western. How did that come to your uh, table? Do you know who John Milius is? Yes. Okay, I was uh, a member of John Milius's stock company. John Milius and John Ford. The, John Milius was a, an image of John Ford. He did that. And I was a member of his stock company. Well, Kevin Jar, who wrote and was the first director of Tombstone, uh, was a protege of John Milius. After Kevin did uh, Glory, that movie, right? He, uh, John introduced me to him. And then we became friends. And we got, we got Kevin a horse. And uh, because I was always collecting Colts and Winchesters and cowboy guns, Kevin wanted to do that. And he was incredible with his knowledge of the West. And uh, so we, we did that and we worked together. We were friends for two years before we, we started doing Tombstone. 
And for a year before we started filming, I was with Kevin where he was, he would write five pages and he would call me up in, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, say, come on down to the house. And I'd come down to his house and uh, in Hollywood, which he lived in a, uh, a house. Oh my God. I'm the silent film back there. Um, no, not Patty Arbuckle. No, the big, the great comedian who, who was a womanizer. Uh, Charlie, Chap- Charlie Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin. He lived in one of Charlie Chaplin's houses. And uh, what, 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 I would go down know, there. Yeah. And and we'd watch a Western movie at like one o'clock in the morning. And and then he'd say, let's have a steak. And at two o'clock, he'd, we'd put a steak on the grill outside and be having that. And then about three o'clock, he'd give me uh, five pages of the script. He said, okay, here's five pages. Go home and uh, and design the guns for him. And so I would do that and I would, I would break it down. And I tried to, I tried to give each character what the, they were all based on real people. So I wanted to give each character what the real person, what type of gun he carried. Or if I I couldn't find that out, I made it up. There've been a number of movies about uh, the gunfight at the OK Corral. What do you, what do you think that Kevin brought to this story that hadn't been done before, because obviously there've been some classic, you know, there's the John Sturgis gunfight at the OK Corral. There's the John Ford, uh, my darling Clementine. I mean, what, what was it about uh, his script that sets it apart? He, he kept it, he kept it at a, at a 30 second gunfight right there in the empty lot next to, next to Fly's uh, gallery by the OK Corral. And he kept it that way. Whereas if you look at uh, uh, my darling Clementine, they're they're doing a totally it's a totally different gunfight, and Doc Holliday dies at it, which he didn't in the in the things. Yes, Doc Holliday got wounded, Morgan Earp got wounded, uh, Virgil Earp got wounded. Yeah, but the people that died are the ones that died. In in the okay in uh, my darling Clementine, they're killing old man Clanton. Old man Clanton died way before that. So historically. It's a great movie. I love watching My Darling Clementine, but it's not the OK Corral. Kevin did it the way it was supposed to be. Who got shot, where they got shot, how they got shot, and and who died. And uh, same thing with the Sturges movie, uh, Gunfight at the OK Corral. You have, uh, is it Burt Lancaster going in after, uh, after the guy in the, you know, upstairs of the general store? Yeah, Dennis Hopper. Dennis, right, Dennis Hopper. That had, you know, that was not authentic to the uh, gunfight. They're all good movies. I watch them every year, but it's it's not what Kevin did. Kevin wanted to make that every every little nuance that he put in that movie was from from actual court records, from eyewitness accounts, <laughs> or from other movies, like. Um, uh, Val Kilmer has that one line when he's when he's writing away from uh, Big Nose Kate, you know, have you no kind words to say before I ride away? That's from the song uh, Gunfight at the OK Corral. <laughs> well, I think and, to, to start with, I think it was interesting that he portrays Wyatt Earp as a guy who wants nothing to do with law enforcement. He comes to uh, he comes to Tombstone with some money to open up a saloon and, and, and work the, the, the table games. And I think that was very interesting that he just wants to stay away from gunplay in a city, or excuse me, in a town that is lawless. Uh, and of yeah, course- he basically the, said, I, ha- I have the reputation, now I want the money. Right, yeah. right. No, I, had a, I, I had a producer, you know, I've got, I've got uh, 18 producer credits. <clears throat> some of them I didn't make any money on, some of them I did. Uh, and I, uh, another friend of mine who's a producer, we were having uh, dinner a couple of months ago and uh, we were talking about producing and he said, all right, I've produced a lot of movies. I made no money on. Now I'm tired of that. I want to make money now. <laughs> and that was basically the same thing that White Earp wanted to do. You know, you, you want to, he went to, he was a boomer. He went to boom towns. So that's, that's what he, that's why he went to Tombstone. Tombstone became you know, uh, a fancy town in literally a couple of years. And again, people don't do the research on it. There was a, a movie done, a TV movie done a couple of years ago called Four Eyes 
which was about a uh, optometrist who came from Chicago and he goes into Tombstone and he meets with Wyatt Earp. Well, he gets an office and uh, it's 1879. That's when Tombstone is founded. And this office that he that he rents is this dilapidated building in the back of one of the buildings. And and the guy renting it to him says, yeah, nobody's been here for 20 years. Well, no, the, the, the town was brand new. How, you know, but the, but the, the writer doesn't think of those things. It's uh, I went in for an interview one time uh, with a line producer for a TV series, and they're going to have Jesse and Frank James rob a bank, you know, fictional robbing the bank. And of course, the hero has to has to hunt them down. And I said, good. What year is this? Because I'll have Frank and Jesse James with the exact guns and the, in the exact gun belts that they had at that time. And he looked at me. And he said, what are you talking about? Jesse James is a fictional character. Wow. True story. Wow. And we go, you know, and I had a couple of buckaroos in there with me for the meeting. And, and I go, wow, we don't have this job. This guy, you know, this, you know, this, they, that, that, that's the unfortunate thing about, about the, the movie business, especially low budget movies that we do. I get these stories. I got a guy calling me today while I'm on the set and, and he's, uh, he said, hey, I met you at, in Tombstone a couple of weeks ago. We did the uh, 30th anniversary. I have this wonderful script. And he started describing the script to me. And I said, what's your budget? He goes, I don't know. And I said, look, the first thing you got to think about is your budget. First thing you got to think about is, are you, do you have the money? Where are you going to get it from? And I told him the best advice I got from a low-budget director that I've worked with on half a dozen movies. He called me one time and he said, I hear you have a location. I said, yeah. He goes, good. I want to come out and take a look at it. He came out. I gave him a tour of uh, my buildings. I gave him a tour of the ranch. And he goes, we're going to do a Western in two weeks. I said, two weeks? I said, great. You, you got to have a script. Let me have the script so I can break it down. He goes, I haven't written it yet. <laughs> and I go, what, what do you mean you haven't written it yet? He goes, I wanted to see what I have so that I can include those in the scenes, that I can... This is where I'm going to have this scene. This is where I'm going to have that scene. He, he had had the story either in his head, but he wrote what he had to put in the script. And I said, that makes the most sense when you're doing a, a low budget thing is as opposed to these scripts that come in where, okay, the oil well blows up and falls on the, on the guy's mansion. I said, well, we don't have a mansion. We don't have an oil well. You can't, you know, you want to erect one of those things that's going to cost you you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Oh, we only have a hundred thousand dollars for the budget. I said, so why do you put that stuff in the script? You can't do it. Do what you do, what you can't. The most important thing is the story and the characters. And if you develop a good story with good characters, then you have a good movie. Stop putting all of this nonsense in it that you can't afford. Peter, you mentioned earlier that Kevin Jar was originally going to direct Tombstone. What happened? He wanted to direct it like John Ford. He wanted to do a John Ford scene. But the current way of making movies is what they call coverage, which absolutely drives me nuts. If you look at a John Ford movie, if you look at an Alfred Hitchcock movie, a John Huston movie, how many close-ups do you see? Very few. You will see a close-up when it means something. Look at a movie made today. It's an establishing shot, and then they go... Close up on one actor, close up on the other actor, close up on the actor, close up on the actor, close up, close up, close up, close up, and usually dark. And what drives me nuts about it is that your major character, he may do his close ups and then he leaves. And the other poor schmuck actor who's working opposite him is now has the, the, the first AD reading lines to him. And he has to react to that instead of literally acting. But you look at, you look at Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Look at uh, Maltese Falcon. <laughs> you look at any of these great movies, Casablanca. You can watch them over and over and over again. You'll always see something new. And I always I use Casablanca as a as a as as a hint sometimes. You know, he has the papers and he he hides them in the piano. Well, all he does is have the papers, folds them up, opens the lid of the piano, and puts them in there. Boom, done. The audience knows he's put the, the letters of transit in the in the piano. That's where they're hidden. Today, the director's got to go, well, I need a close-up of the papers. So 
So the poor prop guy has to go and make up letters of transit from uh, 1943. Then he has to go and do this. Then they have to have a close-up of his hand taking up the lid of the piano and then putting the papers in and then closing the lid of the piano. You don't have that in a really great movie. But today they have to do all of these close-ups. Guy enters the house. Well, we got to have a close-up of the doorknob turning. Why? He opens the door and goes in. <laughs> so Kevin yeah, wanted. Was, Kevin did not want to shoot close-ups, and he got fired. Yeah, that that's base, that's the basic reason. They're going. Where where are the where's the coverage? We need a close-up of uh, Kurt Russell saying a line. We need a close-up of Doc saying a line. We need these close-ups. And and uh, fortunately, they didn't do. They did a lot. But they didn't do that many, and there's still a lot of, of of wide open scenes where you had it, like a John Ford movie. You know, if you look at the Searchers, in the beginning uh, movie when they're having when they're having dinner, the camera is there, stationary on sticks, and the people are moving, and as they're doing their lines, they're moving closer to the camera. They're you know, and and they're doing all of the stuff. It's 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 like looking at, it's like sitting in a room watching people have a conversation sure, you're staying sure. in that room and you're 10 feet away from them what, today what, what, it's it's wait a minute i don't want to count the hairs on your nose stop giving me the damn close-up of, <laughs> of, of, of this character because that's what i'm forcing on you what did you think of george cosmatos the director who replaced kevin <laughs> george was a character he was a he was a a, a, a loud talking um uh, guy, I, I liked him because he was a loud talking guy who spoke his mind. You know, there was an extra uh, on the show, uh, a, a girl, attractive, who had who was uh, uh, endowed by our creator with, uh, you know, and and he would say, ah, "Hey, I need give me the big tit girl. I want her over there sitting there," <laughs> and he would do that. And she she eventually sued the company. She got paid for it. Because, you know, he was embarrassing her, you know, which was, and again, this was 30 years ago. So today, oh my God, she would be owning, owning the studio. Well, one thing With about, one thing about Tombstone, it may have the greatest cast ever assembled for a Western. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally, I mean, not only do you have Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer, but you got Sam Elliott. And he's Mr. Western. You've got Bill Paxton, Powers Booth, Michael Bean. I mean, Charlton Heston has a brief a couple of scenes, and he's kind of a, a, a day player, practically. Uh, you know, I had such a great time working with Heston. Uh, is some, of, some of the lines were cut out. I mean, we're on a scene where he's leaning on the post of his house, and I'm on the, on the opposite post, you know, five feet away from him. And uh, we're, we, you know, and, and, and we were doing the scene, but all of that, that got cut up. But working with Heston was, he gave me a piece of advice, which I use. And he said, you know, you may use it. And I tell it to other actors and I said, you may use it as well. He said, uh, Eddie, Eddie Robinson uh, told him this when they were doing uh, Salient Green. And he said, acting, I love so much. I do it for free. It's the waiting they pay me for. <laughs> by the way the, the year the year that tombstone came out you had competition from the kevin costner wider movie which i yeah. think is, is not a very good movie at all i mean it doesn't even compare to the boots on tombstone why what happened with their movie there's a whole, you know, because I was with Kevin for a year before that and, and working with him, uh, I, I knew a lot of the stuff that a lot of people don't know about. Kevin wanted Kevin Costner to be whiter. And he sent the script to Kevin Costner. And Costner turned it down. And Costner said, I have my own whiter project. He, his project originally was going to be a six-hour miniseries. Oh. But because of Tombstone, he he said, all right, all right we're going to make it into a movie. So they rewrote it to make it into a movie and, and do that. And then the scuttlebutt, it, well, he was with CAA. And he said to CAA, he said, I don't want any actor from CAA going, working on Tombstone. And we were at Universal at the time. 
and he went to Universal and he said, if you do Tombstone, I'm not going to do Waterworld. And Tombs and Universal threw us out. And I was like, I was like dumbstruck. You know, Kevin called me up and he said, uh, we're not at Universal anymore. They threw us out because of Costa. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the first time I'm having a chance to work on a big movie that that means something. And we're thrown out. He said, don't worry about it. The script is good. We're going to get something. And they went uh, to Synergy. And Synergy said, okay, we'll put up the money for the movie if you get Val Kilmer to play Doc Holliday. So they went after Val Kilmer. They got him to play Doc Holliday. Who, uh, who was then, your, was he not your original choice? Um, Willem Dafoe was oh. uh, someone they, they wanted. And I, I had worked with Willem a couple of years before that on uh, Flight of the Intruder. But uh, no, Synergy said that they, we want Val Kilmer, so they got him. Then they needed a distributor. They went to Disney, and Disney said, we'll distribute it if you get Kurt Russell to play Wyatt Earp. So that's how that that teaming came about. Uh, well, who, was there somebody in place before Kurt Russell got the gig? Not that I know. Not that I can remember if uh, if if uh, Kevin had mentioned anything about it. You know, he he wasn't worried about it because he knew his script was so darn good that it was it was going to go somewhere, and it did. Is it? Although any- it was. Yeah, go ahead. No, go finish your thought. Finish your thought. You know, although you know there, there there was a lot of changes in the script, there were a lot of things you know cut out and and everything. You know, I mean, my part was uh, reduced from uh, seventy five lines to five five lines. And the, uh, the the whole concept of the story of the story begins and and Kevin introduces the cowboys as this basically gang of uh, killers. Was that based on fact, Peter, or was that made up? Well, that that first scene uh, with uh, in the church and killing everybody at the wedding, right. that was not in Kevin's original script. In the original script, it was Old Man Clanton and his boys attacking Mexicans and Old Man Clanton being killed at that, which is what happened. And then when they come into town, uh, when when Wyatt Earp and, and his brothers and and his family are, are coming into town, they, there's a scene where where these people are being thrown out of a house, and it's the cowboys, the red sash cowboys, who are throwing these people out of the house because they're literally also working with the sheriff. The sheriff is on their side, and right. then when the sheriff is introduces to to Wyatt and he says, "I have a wonderful house for you." Because they just threw these people out because they didn't pay the rent, and ah. it, it all you know. And he was the I'm part of the anti Chinese league. It's all of these things that were going on. You're showing the the racial uh, tensions, and uh, and what was going on in that. That was what was in Kevin's script. But a lot of that stuff you have to really watch it to see that, or you have to read the original script. Uh, that's why Sam Elliott did it. Sam Elliott when he read that script. He was he was all for it. He said if he was given the rewritten script, he wouldn't have done the movie. Your character, uh, Texas Jack Vermillion, was he a real person? Yes, he was a real person. He was introduced in Hour of the Gun. Oh. There, there's, a te- there's a Texas Jack in Hour of the Gun, who is just like me, is around but doesn't do much. <laughs> How many, That's how where many I, I had. I, I went into the, uh, to tell you my my behind the scenes story. I, I went. I go into the bar one night at the hotel, and Jim Jacks, who was the producer, is arguing with Powers Booth and Michael Bean, and they're 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 they want their lines back. They want their scenes back that that, that had been written out, and they're arguing with them. And Jim is is just arguing, you know. And then they they both leave in a huff. And I walk over next to Jim and I sit down at the bar and I'm going to buy him a beer. And he looked at me and he goes, Peter, he says, don't ask me for your lines back. I can't give them to you. I can't give Powers Booth or Michael Bean back to the line. I can't do anything for you. And I said, ah, Jim, don't worry about it. I said, you know, Ideal Toys was on the set today and they saw me in my outfit and they thought it was so cool that they're going to make a doll out of me. And he looked and his eyes lit up like, wait a minute. 
this is my prize. I, I got to get a piece of this action. And I say, yeah, but the funny thing is when you pull a string on it, it doesn't say anything. <laughs> so, That's I, I have a sense of, I have a sense of, I don't have an ego. I have a sense of humor about it. I love what I do. I make a living at it. I make a good living at it. I'm not, you know, I'm not rich. I'm not famous. I'm not anything, but I have a lot of fun. And that's, that's what this life is about. You know, we're going to be dead a lot longer than we're alive. <laughs> so make the most of it. How many, how many buckaroos worked on Tombstone? I had, uh, all told, were a little over 40. I had, I started with 30 and then literally Kevin gave them parts. But then after they had a part and they said something, they had to be fired. They, they, they couldn't work on it because they were getting buckaroo pay. But then when they got a part, they were getting SAG pay. And the producers came, oh, wait, I can't, I can't pay him SAG, even scale, for the rest of the movie. So you have to replace him. He's got a part. He's got a, you know, he's got a scene. He's there. But he, so I had to replace these 10 guys with another 10 guys. And then, and a couple of guys quit. One guy I know quit before he was on. We, they were there a couple of weeks, and and of course, as they were working, uh, you know, they would the first AD would say, "I want uh, these five guys for tomorrow." I want, and and there were thirty guys, and these other guys are sitting in the Buckaroo camp, going, "How come I'm not working? I want to work." And one guy, he after three or four days, he just got upset. He said, "I'm not working. I'm going home." And he probably kicks himself to this day because of, of the success of Tombstone. And, of course, all the buckaroos are, you know, are, are in it. And uh, they made they made the movie because they brought their own horses, their own costumes, their own guns. They knew how to ride. They knew how to do everything. And you didn't have to worry about it. It was a money-saving event for the people because they got paid X amount of dollars for the 17 weeks that we, we, we filmed. But... They could do everything, whereas you have to go to central casting. Now you have to hire a, an actor. Well, I could ride. Well, he can't ride. Uh, then you have to costume him. Then you have to give him a gun, and he might not know how to handle a gun. So all the buckaroos had three different changes of costume. They brought three or four, you know, one of them brought like 15 guns. And every scene, he was wearing a different gun in it because that's what he would do in, in real life. But you can't do this in, in, you know, in the movies, they, they don't have the budget for it. But with right. the buckaroos, you, you, you get such quality and, and, and you're literally saving money. You're getting something. You can't find anything wrong. A guy named Larry Wilson, who's written about 30, 40 books on Old West guns and all of this stuff. He came up to me one time at a gun show. And he said, hey, I say, I, I've, I've seen Tombstone three times. I didn't see a bad gun in it yet. And I smile at him and I say, you're not going to. <laughs> because that's what we do. And again, that's why I have the buckaroos are guys that I tell them. I said, I want you to, if you know more than I do, man, I want you. That's how we work together. That's, and, and I take advice from them all the time. And they tell me, oh, this is right. This is wrong let's let's do it this way and i i respect their their ability and their knowledge because nobody and i tell people yeah wow you're doing all of these things you're doing the costumes and the horses and the saddles and the guns how are you doing all of this i said because i have the buckaroos helping me i can't do it without them we're doing the show right now i've got nine guys on horseback tomorrow besides the actors so i hired well i said look you let me hire the buckaroos these guys will come in now, yes, I'm bringing the nine horses in, or a couple of them are bringing their own horses in, but I'm bringing uh, the rest of the horses in. Well, as I, you know, I said, they will get to know the horse. They will ride the horse. They will saddle the horse. They will take care of that horse all day. That will be their horse for this show. Whereas if they hire somebody from Central Casting, he's going to go sit in craft service drinking coffee, waiting for the Wrangler to saddle the horse for him. And I, I, I get this so many times with actors going, oh, I can ride. I go, good. Saddle that horse. Bring him over here. Oh, I don't know how to do that. And I look at him and I said, then you don't know how to ride. Don't tell me you can ride if you can't saddle a horse, if you don't know what you're doing. Well, I, well, I, I, I took some lessons. He takes three lessons, you know, from some uh, 
you know, fly-by-night outfit that's that's taking his money, and he thinks he's a horseman now. There's a lot to being a horseman. A horseman, um, it, it's like playing golf or playing tennis. It's like playing golf, basically. It's something you can learn in 20 minutes, but it takes you a lifetime of experience. It's every horse is every horse. It's a horse has a personality. A horse is just like a human being. You have to learn that horse's personality. You have to work with them. And, and they're all different. So you, know, you have to be able to, I, I tell people it's like, it's like, it's like making love with a different woman. You may do it the same way, but it's different. <laughs> well, we, we have had a wonderful hour talking with Peter Shereko, the CEO of Caravan West, who's done so many things in our business. He's one of our most colorful figures. Peter, I've got to have you come back on the show. We got to do a, I want to do a night just talking about cavalry movies because I know you can talk on my ear off about the cavalry. Well, and I'm still waiting for you to get your movie ready so we can work on it. I know, I know, absolutely. And we will do that. Uh, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. And we have been listening uh, raptly to Peter Shereko. Peter, thank you so much for coming on. Steve, thank you for having me. You're welcome.